The United States of America has dramatically changed. For most of us, uh, the America that we knew growing up is no longer here. The Judeo-Christian moral foundation that has been assumed for so long and that has traditionally provided a, a pretty low cost for living out Christianity continues to decay at a rapid rate. Within the last 10 to 20 years, in particular, we have witnessed a cultural shift away from the morals and values that were largely mainstream. And so I believe that the cost of truly following Jesus Christ is escalating quickly. In 2004, a math teacher from Nebraska was fired for talking about Christianity in his classroom. In 2013, a substitute teacher in New Jersey was fired for quoting a Bible verse to a student and giving them a Bible. In 2013, in a counterintelligence debriefing at Fort Hood, soldiers were told that evangelical Christians are a threat to Americans and that it was punishable under military regulations for soldiers to donate to such a group. In 2014, the city of Houston, Texas, subpoenaed sermons and other documents from local preachers that focused on the topic of homosexuality or addressed the controversial Equal Rights Ordinance, which treated gays and lesbians as a protected class. 1950s America is gone. It's gone. The cost of living out the Christian faith in America is higher now. Now, is the persecution of Christians in America equivalent to that of North Korea or Iraq or Eritrea? Well, of course not. Of course not. But to say that believers are not persecuted for their faith in Christ in America would be really naive. People are suffering for Christ, for the sake of Christ in our country. I'm concerned about our country. I'm concerned about the future of my children living here. I'm concerned about this presidential election, and I'll leave it at that. When I look at the problems all around in America, I personally tend to get uh, frustrated, discouraged, overwhelmed. You might share some of that. What should we do? What should we do? Is there anything we can do? Is America too far gone? I do know this. America is desperate for spiritual awakening. Desperate for God. What should we do? Well, Paul made it really simple for us. We need to do just one thing. Now, come on. We can do one thing, right? Just one thing. Paul made it clear. Here's what Paul told the Philippians to do. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first word of that statement is monos. You might hear mono in that, meaning just one thing. Just one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that about sums it up. And how much America needs Christians to live a life worthy of the gospel. You see, the Philippians were engaged in the same battle that Paul was. There was a cost for them to live for Christ, and they were deeply committed. They they were partners in the gospel, as Paul 
had said. They labored with Paul to proclaim Christ, to defend and confirm the gospel. They, they uh, worked to advance the gospel with Christ, which was really not easy to do in their context. Their labor for Christ came at a cost. Hence Paul's mention of suffering and conflict in verses 29 and 30. And the Philippians, in the middle of that, needed encouragement. They needed to be built up in what to do. It's interesting, in verse 27, Paul used the word polytuomai, poly, poly, city, polytuomai, which is translated, let your manner of life be. But the word literally means to behave as a citizen. Philippi was a Roman colony, and that was a big deal, and so the Philippians were Roman citizens. But more importantly, Paul told them in chapter 3, verse 20, that they were citizens of heaven. So it was their citizenship in heaven that dictated how they were to live as citizens of Philippi. Notice Paul did not at all say to live a life worthy of Rome or Caesar. No, what he said was to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ because more than being a citizen of Rome, more than being a citizen of America, believers are citizens of heaven. And so that's going to dictate how we live. In 1953, American citizens Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed for passing atomic bomb secrets to Russia which aided Joseph Stalin's development of nuclear weapons programs. They compromised the national security of America. And some of you might remember this uh, when it happened. They acted in a way that dishonored America and their citizenship. Believers must do nothing that compromises the gospel. We must do nothing that brings shame, disgrace, embarrassment, or dishonor to the gospel of Christ. Instead, Christians should live in a way that reflects the pricelessness of the gospel. That's what Paul was after. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's our application today. It's really simple. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should we respond to the election and political corruption and liberalism and socialism? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should we respond to LGBTs and the ACLU and Planned Parenthood? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should we respond to growing hostility towards Christians in America? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should we respond to all of the evil that is around us in culture and society? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do one thing. As Paul said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we hear that, but what does it mean? What does that look like? How do you live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, it's not as complicated as it may seem. Paul gives six things in Philippians 1 that help define what he means. And I've turned them into six simple statements to encourage you how to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we'll go through them one at a time. And I hope this brings emphasis upon what that one thing means. 
means. Now let me say this before we begin. Paul said in verse 27, you'll see, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, and let's stop right there. Whatever happened to Paul, he wanted to hear that they were living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was was actually putting some godly pressure on the Philippians. They needed that pressure, that encouragement. Hey, I want to hear that you're walking the walk. I want to hear that you're living the life worthy of the gospel. I want that good report to come to me. So keep this in mind as we proceed. Each point, each of these six points, is something that we do together in the context of Christian community, the community of believers. If you pull this out and try to apply it outside of the church of Jesus Christ, I I just don't know how you're going to make sense of it. So this we do together. Number one, stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in one spirit. Paul wanted them to be steadfast, to stand firm together, to be immovable when the battle of the gospel gets tough, strong, secure, fixed in the gospel and in one spirit. So imagine a, a soldier who is fighting to hold his ground. I think of the attack of America in, uh, on America in Benghazi. Uh, I don't know much. And there's a lot that's buried in that whole thing. But I know some major mistakes were made by our government. And I know some brave American warriors fought hard under intense fire to protect American lives. Un- until they were able to move, a small crew fought bravely and stood their ground. And though four were lost... Many lives were saved. Paul encouraged the Philippians to stand firm and to stand together. Standing down, not an option. Stand firm, stand together. Now, verse 27 is a little confusing. It has the word spirit. Now, does that mean the spirit, the inner spirit of a man? Or does that mean the Holy Spirit? Okay, and if you read it, both make sense. Both are acceptable. Scholars differ on on what it means, but grammatically it could be either. And both interpretations capture something that is wonderfully true. Well, Acts 4.32 says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. You get the essence of that? I think that's what Paul is mainly trying to get across. But I'm uncomfortable dismissing the Holy Spirit. He needs mention here. Uh, If Paul meant a common inner spirit that they all had, one spirit, they could only have that common inner spirit if the Holy Spirit had uh, given them that one spirit to work in them. And, And in verse 19, Paul mentions the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul mentions participation in the spirit. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul mentions standing firm in the Lord. And so I think the Holy Spirit is at least implied, if not directly referred to here. And no doubt, standing firm only happens in the Holy Spirit. One thing is true, Paul knew it, and we know it, to live a life worthy of the gospel We must stand firm with other believers in one common spirit, which is created and preserved by the Holy Spirit. Stand firm. Stand firm. We must. We must not waver in trusting the gospel and living out its implications. Number two, 
have one unified mind. Have one unified mind. This is a bit tricky. The word is psuche. It's often translated soul. Psuche refers to the entire inner life of a person. And it can refer to psychological faculties such as the heart or the mind or the conscience. And it sometimes uh, comes in company with the word spirit. Many translators, as the ESV does, have it as mind. Mind. And in verse 27, and in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul encourages the Philippians to be of the same mind. And so mind is a reasonable translation here. So Paul encouraged the Philippians to stand firm together with complete and utter oneness of mind in the gospel. They didn't have to stop thinking for themselves. They didn't have to put aside their preferences for certain things. They were still individuals, but they were part of a group And they were to have a one-track mind, a gospel mind, a gospel mind. For all believers, the gospel must be their shared train of thought. Now, Jerusalem Church is gospel-centered. We preach the gospel, teach the gospel, pray the gospel, sing the gospel, so that we can all stand firm in one spirit with one mind, with one mind. Now, I know Christians disagree over theology and doctrine. I've been involved in many very interesting discussions through the years over doctrine and theology, but there is a striking unity among gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting Christians because the Holy Spirit of truth conforms them to the gospel, not their personal preference, not to what some guru says, not groupthink. The Holy Spirit conforms them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore they have striking unity if you believe the gospel. The gospel is our common ground. Living a life worthy of the gospel means to have one mind with other believers. So then, the Christian faith is rational. It's rational. It's reasonable. It involves propositions that must be believed. Our minds must conform to the word of Christ. Number three. Number three. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted to know that the Philippians were striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not giving up, continuing, persevering. The, the Greek word for striving side by side can actually mean competition. Uh, when the Barons football team, forgive me, this is fun. The Barons football team, they take, they're pounding everybody this year. It's awesome. 69 to 14 the last game. I'm getting sidetracked. When the Barons football team takes the field, every one of them has their role and their responsibility. They work together. The defense struggles and labors and strives side by side to hold their ground and to create an impenetrable football wall that you're not getting through. And the offense struggled side by side to advance, to take it forward. They move and they sweat and they bleed together to accomplish the goal of victory over their opponents. In order to taste victory, they must strive side by by side. Our struggle for the faith, it is physical, okay? But it's also spiritual, deeply spiritual. And as believers, we are in the trench 
together. We are in the trench together. We strive for the gospel in close community with other believers. Solitude is not an option. Individualism is not an option. To truly live a life worthy of the gospel is to strive side by side with others who are striving for the gospel. This is the partnership in the gospel that Paul mentioned earlier in verse 5. Now, what are we striving for? A lot of churches would benefit to get back to the biblical answer to this. What are we striving for? The faith of the gospel. What is the faith of the gospel? Verse 27. In verse 27, it means the content or the doctrine of the gospel. Sometimes in Scripture, the word faith represents the sum total of all the truth and doctrines that compose the gospel. Are you following me? Galatians 1.23 mentions Paul preaching the faith. He's preaching content. Paul preached a particular faith, a particular set of doctrines which has defined lines. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 1.9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That makes absolutely no sense unless there are clearly defined lines of the faith of the gospel of Christ. It is not ambiguous It is clear, it has boundaries, and we make sense of the faith of the gospel when the Holy Spirit helps us, and I really want to emphasize the Holy Spirit's help, helps us apply logic and grammar and unbiased interpretation to draw from Scripture what God actually wants us to believe. There are people who are twisting in weird ways the scripture, and it's like, just read it fairly, and it does not say what you're saying it says. Now, some people, including some professing Christians, talk about faith in a nebulous way as if faith is cryptic or obscure or relative with no defined borders. That's, that's irrational. That is so irrational and so foolish, you almost don't know where to begin because there is a little thing called absolute truth. Okay, it's not a little thing. It's a big thing. Absolute truth. There are propositions to be believed and propositions to be rejected. Jude brings this to light. He told his his readers this. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in order to contend for the faith, don't you have to know what you're contending for? There has to be clearly defined lines. Otherwise, you don't know what you're contending for. And who are you contending with if you don't have any idea what faith is? We must know what we're striving for. Now imagine Christina asked me to go to Wise and to pick up some stuff. Honey, head to, head to Wise, pick me up some stuff. Well, what stuff? Well, I don't have time to explain. Just go and make sure it's right. So imagine me wandering Wise. What, what am I supposed to get? 
Why am I even here? Uh, with this confused look, I'd be speculating, what does my wife want me to get? I want to get her what she wants me to get? I have no idea. See, Jonathan needs a clearly defined list. I need it in my hand. I've tried to remember, and I'll end up calling her. I have no idea. What was I supposed to get again? Just scatterbrained. I need a list. In fact, it would be helpful for Christina to tell me the brand, to tell me what the box looks like, to tell me what aisle I'm supposed to walk in. Yes, Christina, you know, just take me to there. The more I know, the more effective husband shopper I will be. I think most of us know the basics of sin, Jesus, the cross, forgiveness, and that's good. Praise God we know the basics. I challenge you to go deeper into the faith of the gospel so you can better strive for it. Contend for it, defend it, and advance it. Ignorance does not display the great worth of the gospel of Christ. So keep studying, keep learning, keep asking God to reveal himself to you through the word of God. You will limp along without the word of God. Where does our ability to strive come from? And this is such an awesome question. Is, is it something that we just have to conjure up on our own? Is it something we just have to try harder? Let's, let's turn to Martin Luther here as he answers it well. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, always remember, brothers and sisters, that Christ is our strength to strive. Number four, never be afraid of your opponents. No fear. The Philippians' opponents were those that were hostile towards the gospel, and therefore, since they were into the gospel, they were hostile towards the Philippians. In verse 30, Paul mentioned that the Philippians had the same conflict that he had. Well, what conflict was that? Well, Paul was in, in prison for preaching Christ and advancing the gospel, but the Philippians were not in prison. So how was it the same? Well, they were proclaiming Christ, and they were working to advance the gospel as partners in the gospel, and they were facing opposition because they were doing what Paul was doing. Conflict is inevitable when we proclaim Christ and advance the gospel. The Greek word for conflict is agone, where we get the word agony. It used to refer to fierce athletic competition. Along with Paul, the Philippians faced great resistance, great opposition. In verse 28, it's, it's radical. Paul said, not frightened in anything by your opponents. In anything. What if they were threatened? What if they were beat up? What if they were put in prison? What if they were cheated? What if they were pulled away from their families? What if their children were involved? What if they were tortured and killed? Those are terrifying circumstances. Paul was no stranger to that kind of threat, yet he left no room for fear. None. Not frightened in anything. The Philippians had absolutely no reason to be fearful, to live in fear. 
they had Christ. With Christ, what is it that we should fear? What rivals him? The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. Our soul is securely God's. In the 23rd Psalm, why wouldn't David fear any evil? Because God was with him. As a Christian, you can be fearless in any circumstances of your life precisely because God is with you in the middle of it. Christians do not need to live in fear ever. Now, you know, that's easier said than done. Wow, we must battle for this because we are weak. We get scared. I get scared all the time. But God is strong and his spirit is there to help us. With great love and care, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. My friends, the kingdom is already ours. God has given it to us. It is rightfully ours because of Christ. What then shall we fear? What what should we cower away from when the kingdom is ours? What, are they going to kill us and send us to the kingdom which is ours? Are they going to kill us so we go to Christ who is our greatest gain? Living a life worthy of the gospel is to live a fearless life, and we need the Spirit so much to do that. I am such a fearful wimp. The rest of verse 28 is pretty sobering. Paul writes, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Living a life worthy of the gospel is a clear sign. It's it's proof that any gospel opponents will be destroyed by God. The word apuleia, which means perdition, eternal damnation, The same word is used in Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Jesus called Judas the son of destruction. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Whether the opponents of the gospel know that they will be destroyed or not, a life worthy of the gospel advertises their destruction nonetheless. Those who persecute Christians, they may think that they are doing the destroying, when in reality they are proving their own future destruction. All opponents of the gospel will be destroyed by God in eternal hell. A life worthy of the gospel is a clear sign of something else. The salvation of those who live a life worthy of the gospel. And their salvation is all grace. It's from God Uh, Living a life worthy of the gospel is assurance of salvation. Do not take this lightly, my friends. I spoke with someone recently that, that sat there and showed very little to none assurance of their salvation. 
they, they, they were weak. They, they just didn't know. And the way to combat spiritual insecurity is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Enemies of the gospel do not like to be around people living a life worthy of the gospel because it makes them feel guilty before God. They don't want to be around that. And sometimes their guilt turns into rage. Sometimes it turns into violence or discrimination or persecution. And that only proves the salvation of the afflicted and boosts their confidence in what God has done for them. This is amazing. Haters end up strengthening the joy and faith of the ones they're afflicting. God does that. This is amazing. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, inspired his listeners with this. Just listen to this. For when saints can bear fierce persecution without flinching, it is an evident sign that they are saved by the grace of God. Yes, when you find yourself in the middle of persecution for Christ's sake and you're standing strong by the Spirit, the Spirit is somehow just doing something and you're making it and you're persevering and you're not backing down and you find this strange courage in the face of opposition, it is evidence that you are saved. And like salvation itself, my friends, the assurance of salvation is this wonderful gift of God. I suffer for Christ and I am his as I'm contending for the faith. I'm his. He's saved me. This is proof of it. Number five, believe in Christ for the sake of Christ. Take note of several things about belief from verses 28 and 29. Number one, belief in Christ is a gift from God. Number two, belief in Christ is necessary for salvation. And number three, belief in Christ is for the sake of Christ. Now, before we get into those three points, in case you're taking notes, let me say this regarding the word believe. Philip Jensen is an author and a speaker uh, from Sydney, Australia, and I heard him interviewed at a conference that I went to this past April, and he expressed his dislike for the word faith in Scripture. Because at least in his context in Sydney, Australia, he believes non-Christians hear the word faith and think superstition in their context. And I think that he has a point. In our context, I think people hear the word faith and they think intellectual belief or assent or agreement with something. And that is also dangerous. Uh, Philip would rather use the word trust. And he said this, trust rely, depend, I think mean exactly what faith means in the Bible. And he's right. That's what faith means in the Bible. To believe in Christ is not simply uh, intellectual belief or agreement that something is true. To believe in Christ is to trust in Christ. To believe in Christ is to rely on Christ. To believe in Christ is to depend on Christ. Do you see? So then, number one, Trust in Christ is a gift from God. If you study verse 29 closely, you see that to believe or to trust in Christ has been granted or given to the Philippians. The verb is passive in meaning. So the Philippians were acted upon. God was in the active and God was giving to them trust in Christ. 
All of salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord, including the gift of trust that we exercise in Christ because he gave it to us. Number two, trust in Christ is necessary for salvation. The word for in verse 29 links back to the preceding verse where salvation is mentioned. Salvation comes only through trusting in Christ alone. Number three, trust in Christ is for the sake of Christ. Paul said for his sake. God gave trust to the Philippians for the sake of Christ. Now certainly faith benefits the Philippians. They're saved through it. God uses faith to save them. But their trust in Christ benefits Christ because Christ himself is the object of their trust. And as they trust in Christ alone, it glorifies Christ alone, showing him to be worthy of their complete trust. So I take Paul to mean that trust in Christ was granted to them for the glory of Christ. I think that's what he means. Because whenever someone relinquishes their trust in everything else and places their trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, it exalts him as one that is worthy of all trust. That glorifies him. It's for his sake. And if you're like, I don't know if I'm with you, study Isaiah 48, verse 11 sometime. Isaiah 48, verse 11, which will further explain what I'm trying to say. Okay, so check that out. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ begins with confidence and trust in Christ. You live a life worthy of the gospel when you place your trust in Christ. Isn't that simple to understand? I don't think that's hard. You must do it, though. The last point is a tough one, and it's so clear in Scripture, and it's so true, but it is so hard to swallow. This one might sting a little bit. Number six, suffer Because of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Suffering for Christ isn't pleasant, but there is something beautiful and something joy-inducing about it. Consider verses 29 and 30 carefully. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gift from God, is it not? Isn't that what Paul is saying? Paul said, for it has been granted or given to you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer for his sake. God gave the Philippians persecution as a gift. Just, just, just think about that for a while. That's an, um, it's an important distinction to, to know that they were not suffering generically, some illness or something. They were suffering because of their identification with Jesus Christ. This is persecution. Um, unbelievers, they suffer generically, but they never suffer because of Christ for the sake of Christ. Therefore, they never identify with Jesus in his suffering. Christians do, as verse 30 in the context show. It might be physical suffering, mental, spiritual suffering because of our identification with Christ. How is persecution a gift from God? I'd like some other gifts from God. Persecution? One Listen to what God does through this. These are gifts. One, it assures us of our salvation, which is a tremendous gift. Two, it helps us identify and commune with Christ in his suffering, which is pure grace. Three, it produces greater joy in us because it produces endurance and character and hope. And it confirms for us that God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Romans 5, 3 through 5. Suffering because of Christ is a glorious thing. 
And it is, as verse 29 says, for his sake or for the glory of Christ. Now, when you hear this, this might seem far-fetched. What in the world? But it's not far-fetched. In Acts 5, the apostles were beaten by a Jewish council, and then they were released. And then verse 41 says that the apostles left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They actually rejoiced because they were beaten down because of Jesus. Man, whoo. And we need God's grace. There's no way we're doing that without God's grace to suffer for Christ like that. So I want you to think about this. Trusting in Christ and suffering for Christ go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Both are given by God. And Jesus said that if you suffer because of him, you are blessed. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14 says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Joy is possible amid the most intense religious persecution because the kingdom is ours. Our reward in heaven is great. The spirit of glory and of God rests on us and we will see Christ again. To die is gain. Never forget this, my friends. To be a partner with Christ in his suffering is to be a partner with Christ in his glory. To be a partner with Christ in his suffering is to be a partner in Christ in his glory. Never, never forget that. If you're concerned about America, I think you should be. And if you're wondering, what on earth can little me do? Then I'd like to challenge you with just one simple thought. There is something you can do. It's actually really simple to understand. But it takes real commitment and sacrifice to do it. You need to love Christ to do it. You need to to have the Holy Spirit to do it. You need your Bible to do it. Here's the challenge. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do that one thing. By doing these six things well. Stand firm in one spirit, have one unified mind, strive, by, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, never be afraid of your opponents, believe in Christ for the sake of Christ, suffer because of Christ for the sake of Christ. If you do those six things faithfully, you will be living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, and you will, in that, be a great citizen of the United States of America. The, the two just go so wonderfully together. It takes great discernment to apply that, discernment to apply that. Like, how do I vote? How do I obey laws? How how do I, what do I do? Because the change isn't fast enough. Well, God will help us, and America needs the church to act like Christ. With no fear and no compromise. Act like Christ. 
Have you heard the term grassroots? I'll end with this. It's a movement driven by the common people rather than the elites. It's from the bottom up, grassroots, on the ground. And I don't know if America will heal. I don't know what God will do in America, but I know America needs a grassroots movement of families and people who will live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ wherever they go. We, we, we need people who are going to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ at home, at school, at church, in the workplace, in culture, in society. I know we need that. And I know that that would make a considerable difference in America. Do it, my friends. Do it. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Father, thank you for our great country. And thank you for all of the good that is being done in it. Thank you for your church that is spread out, not only in America, but across the world. But God, we need your help because we're a broken nation. This election has been crazy. It's out of control. Our political system is out of control. There are so many illegal things happening by those at the top that it's disgusting. It's not even like we honor the laws of the land anymore. So God, we are a broken nation in desperate need of you, God, and I pray that the Christians, I'm, I'm not talking about I'm a Christian because I'm American type of Christians, the kind of Christians who actually love Christ and are trying very hard by the Spirit to walk with Him and to serve Him. Those Christians, God, would you strengthen them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ so that our nation can see the supremacy in Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all things. God, we need you. Do it. And start right here at Jerusalem with us living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's not hard to to remember God, but it is really hard to do. It's impossible. Therefore, we need your spirit to move in us, to lead us on this great grassroots campaign to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do it, God. Move your spirit. We need you. I'm begging you to do it in me and to do it in my brothers and sisters so that we have the discernment we need in crazy times. May the church rise up and act like Jesus. Amen.